Hello and welcome to Inside Out. It's your girl Jane Z. One of my favorite quotes is this one from John Muir. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. I'm a big food nerd and not so much foodie in a sense of trying out new restaurants, although I do like that, but I love learning about food systems and places. You know, who made it, where it's grown, how it gets to your plate, and There's so much you can learn about a person or place by just looking at what they eat. Today's guest is Peter Lee, and he's a coffee entrepreneur. A few years ago, he built his own coffee roaster to supply coffee to his school district. And later on, he ran some experiments in his dorm room to try and make coffee bars, edible, solid coffee. At the time, he was seeing a lot of food insecurity where he lives now in Oakland, California, and he became curious about how to make good quality food accessible. Another big inspiration was, how do you make coffee for outer space? Drinking coffee is risky because anything hot or cold can damage the spaceship, and it's hard to contain liquids in space. So he started to tinker with coffee, and today, a couple years later, Koba Coffee is a full-on food startup that made one of the most delicious coffee bars out there. I say that because I've tried it, and this is after running three very successful Kickstarter campaigns. Before his coffee days, something terrible happened that altered the course of Peter's life. In high school, he was a straight-A student and did regular community work out on Skid Row as he lived outside of L.A., For all intents and purposes, Peter was on track to go to an Ivy League college. His parents, who were Korean immigrants, owned a toy store, and during Peter's senior year, the store burned down in a terrible fire due to some bad wiring, and they didn't have insurance, which meant his family lost their entire income source and eventually their house. Peter had to step up to handle all the legal things, and overnight, he also lost all his ability to pay for college. Because of that, he was rejected from every single school he applied to. And the shame was crippling. So much so that he dropped out of high school because of it just months before graduating. Thankfully, over the years, Peter was able to pull himself back up, trying out different side hustles to figure out his new identity. He went to community college. He applied to UC Berkeley four times before finally getting in. And... Today, he works as an auditor by day and runs Koba Coffee by night. He's done a lot of work on himself over the years to remedy what happened that senior year of high school and make sure that he's mentally okay, no matter what successes or failures he has to show on the outside. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love to hear what you got out of it. You can reach me on Instagram at InsideOutWithJane or tag me in a story. And if you're new here, be sure to follow on Apple or Spotify for conversations like this one every Tuesday. All right, on to the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. 
My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. What was Peter like as a kid and what was kind of your family's uh, origin story? Yeah, I have been a troublemaker and I only know this because I read through the report cards that my first and second grade teacher left me and they were always saying, commenting on my behavior. And you know, we, back then we were ranked one, two, three, four. I hit 01 in all the behaviors. I didn't even know this because like for the most of my high school years and middle school years, I've been a stellar student. I was so well behaved. Did all the extracurriculars, did everything right, got great grades. But my fiance is a teacher and she is teaches special ed. And there's a student that she has that's just such a troublemaker as well. And she keeps telling me that that's, that was me. I, I guess I did make a big of a mess, but I kind of grew up. And I think when things got a little bit more serious on my family, where my mom was starting to care about, hey, like, you know, who do you want to be and what do you want to be? Those questions came up. And what I did was I just looked around my friends. But luckily, I looked at somebody who wanted to be the first Asian president of the U.S. And uh, I was like, oh, I want to be like him. His name is Forrest. I want to be just like mm-hmm. Forrest. His dad was a lawyer and he was just like doing really well in school and all this stuff. And he, and he did great. He went to Yale and is like doing great. And then I started competing academically, right? I wasn't number one in the beginning or anything like that, but eventually I started doing really well through middle school and high school. And as I was doing well, I developed this massive ego and I thought I was going to um, change the world and go to like great schools like Harvard, like your alma mater, Jane. But uh, things took a pretty big turn. I dropped out of high school at some point, two months before I graduated. Whenever I bring it up, I still feel like the shame because you're the mm. first, I'm also the first person in my entire family on both sides that came to school, got his education here. And now my parents have to tell all their siblings and my cousins that Peter, who thought we're going to, going to go to like an Ivy league or do all these great things academically is, is uh, going to drop out. I, I, I still, yeah, still feel a little bit and, about that. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, when we were emailing back and forth, I mentioned I could really relate to that part of your story because I had similarly gone down this track for undergrad where I was also an international student, applied to a bunch of Ivy Leagues, ended up getting waitlisted mostly because of the financial part. So I went to Harvard for grad school eventually, but but for undergrad, I, I stayed in Canada but yeah, you were on track, you know, you had the grades, you had the extracurriculars, you were doing a lot of community work at the time, mm-hmm. right? I was also an international student. That's a big one. And my parents had lost everything in a, in a fire a year before. So our, our tax return showed like a negative, like $200,000. So these colleges were, yeah, waitlisted. Okay, waitlisted at Princeton, waitlisted at a couple of schools. Even the schools that gave me free applications rejected me because I couldn't wow. pay for it. And the, the fire that was at your parents' store that they ran. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We had a store, um, a toy store in Huntington Park, California. And in 2009, Christmas time, when this is like the most critical month of uh, a toy store, there was a bad wiring and no insurance. And we lost the whole store and eventually lost our house. And Oh, shit. It was, it was, it was um, you know, like I'm the only one who speaks English, right? At that, or my, I have a younger mm. sister who's way younger and wouldn't be able to handle as much as I did. So, you know, like 
try to get into in, in the front of a lot of these like paperworks and contracts and you know and everybody wow. was working really hard and so on top of everything that's going on academically there, there's that layer pretty much the tip of the iceberg even during all this though i would be very intimately involved with the skid row homeless community outreach that a local church used to go to i started this club kind of around this organization because i said hey look like we are upper middle class bunch of kids who have never sat down and had lunch with a homeless man or a woman and we probably never will so when yeah. i had that rare experience to kind of just go out there and do this it really changed my perspective and it, it's a totally different vibe and a to totally different relationship when you start you know sitting on the curb and you just kind of like very humbly you know as like a 14 15 year old sort of asking questions about how was their life they've never been asked that too right so it's, it's like this great great moment where I realized, oh my gosh, like this changed my life a little bit. Or I, I remember the, the first man who said, hey, look, like, you know, if you can't make it myself, I'm not a man. And he was like, I was like, wow, that's what he tells himself every day. So I gathered all my friends and we went down regularly, every other week or every week or something like that, you know, eating lunch and distributing lunch with some friends we meet there. And a bunch of schools actually started the same club that I started in, in high school. So we had like five schools, almost like 200 mm -hmm. members, all going regularly. Wow. And we partnered with like three or four nonprofits in the area that had marginalized people looking for work. And all we could do is just give them some sort of tra transportation that makes it a little bit easier, which were like in, in a high school, mine was bicycles. So we gathered like a mm. hundred bicycles and over the summer and kept them in my backyard and just made a mess of things. There's tires everywhere. And, and then we just took it, took it down. We just took it down to uh, Skid Row. It was nice because uh, some news stations came and that became like a documentation and like for, for us to all look back and like, all remember those days. It was like really cool. Wow. That's, that's super cool. So you were like the summer before senior year, you were like hauling bicycles and like wrangling kids to, and <laughs> to bring them down to skid row. You got to kind of put yourself in the situation of a 14, 15 year old Asian kid going down to skid row and saying, I'm going to bring a hundred bikes in the middle of, you know, if you're in SF, it's like the tenderloin. How the heck are you going to give out these bicycles into the, into this platform? And so everybody in the community was saying, you're going to get robbed. You know, you're going to get people coming and mm. steal them away. You have to have a system for this. So we literally got a parking lot like a week before this whole event was going down and like CBS and all these people said they're going to come and document this. I think that's important because it wasn't as like quick as like, Hey, we just give out bicycles. It was like, okay, mm. there has to be a strategy or you're going to just give it to anybody who's going to sell it and do whatever they need to do with it. And I get, I get yeah. the need for money. I definitely do. When I was in high school, I was really into photography and we have a similar area in Vancouver, mm -hmm. the downtown East side, mm -hmm. you know, very rundown, a lot of homeless people with mental illnesses. And I, you know, having watched some documentaries and things, I was like, I'm going to go down and do a film project oh, yeah. <laughs> in downtown East side. Yeah, and my teachers were like, you are a small Asian girl. You're not doing that. No. And on top of that, you know, like. There was a lot of disdain. If anybody pulled out a camera in Skid Row, I would hear somebody yelling, be like, yo, hey, you know, don't film us, right? Like, mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, like, that's real. Like, don't film their lifestyle. If they say don't do it, we shouldn't do it, right? You learn a lot. You, you think that you have this idea of how you're going to save people as a 15-year-old, save the world and all this stuff. And that mindset really ruined a lot of countries, even like. Chicago boys from U Chicago, when they went down to Chile to start this like free trade society completely, or like when we started developing South American countries and, and said, this is the one plant that you're going to cultivate and their entire economy is based on the yield of that 
of that crop, whether it's cocoa, bananas, or things like that. It really ruins a lot of countries because we apply our naive solution, you know, and I learned mm. this through college, but also like seeing it myself, like some people maybe didn't need bicycles, right? Because they were exchanging it for cash. Maybe at the end of the mm. day, what they needed was just a little moment of like freedom with what they can do with the cash. I just realized I'm not here to judge and I'm not here to apply my solution. What really hit me was there's one man named Peewee, like a strange name. I was walking down the skid row and he was like, yo, Peter, I want to pray for you. And he was like, whoa, I'm like, what? It shook my world because you'd expect you to be the one going and giving, but he wanted to mm -hmm. pray for me. Like that was powerful. Mm. And I asked him actually what he needed because he was actually going from downtown Los Angeles to Riverside, which is maybe like an hour, two, two hours away, because that one Ralph's there was the only one that would hire him in the back room. So I said, like, what do you need? And he's like, oh, you know, maybe just like, you know, I take the bus down there. And so maybe I need like a little bicycle or something. I was like, oh, a bicycle. And that's where it kind of flashed. But what, what was what was so hard about Peewee was that after we gave the bicycles out, a couple months later, we found out he died and he was murdered. Oh, he was shit. shot. It was a homicide. Man, you know, it's heavy. Peewee was, I mean, what a great man. Try to pray for like this one kid, right? The little complexities of life. And I, I actually still haven't really resolved that. Mm. Mm. I, I love that you bring up this idea that you have to understand what people need if you're really going in and genuinely wanting to help. I remember in college, one of my friends had this idea that for his birthday, he wanted to give out a hundred Burger King burgers and distribute them to homeless people. So I went with him. It happened to be May 1st and we walked around and there was like maybe two or three people out. We maybe handed out like five burgers that day of like all the bags of things. <laughs> we bought yeah. and we asked one of them you know like where is everybody and they were like oh it's the first of the month which means yeah. the welfare checks come in yeah. so you have to be home and we're like oh you know it's like so silly yeah. like two college students trying to do good but like have no idea what's going on yeah and they, yeah. Like, they have a home oh they're just hanging out <laughs> right. they're just hanging out here because it's just a community i'm like whoa and like even then like they could buy a one dollar burger right from burger king Mm -hmm. and when it's a food insecurity, food deserts, it's already a problem here. I'm in Oakland, which is like also urban, but there are pockets of like sections of this city that is, that is a food desert, only mm -hmm. liquor stores, no access to whole foods and vegetables. Part of the even inspiration for Koba was because we were thinking about the future of food and, you know, our acute version of doing this was how do you make coffee in space, outer space when there's like no resources. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, we make coffee into a bar because people eat chocolate in space and the M&Ms and things like that. Hmm. But they, drinking coffee is very risky because if it's hot or cold, it'll damage a lot of things and it's hard to contain liquid in space. So we were thinking like, okay, well, like if this is kind of inventing the future of food, and if you look at our logo, it's a rocket ship, right? It's also thinking about how do we bring food easily, good food here to where we're at and make it affordable and make it accessible for everybody. And that's really the themes of like where our brand is headed and how do we make you know, good coffee, quality, accessible to a lot more people quicker. I think Copa was a small step in that direction and we're still working at it, but um, that's a big passion of mine. I've, I've been overweight my whole life, almost my whole life. I had like small moments where I lost a ton of weight, but it really comes from insecurity with food and not understanding my relationship with that. Even a, an addiction to certain type, types of foods and 
what I go for when I feel a certain way. Like there's this huge relationship mm. and you know, you are what you eat at, at the end of the day, right? Like somebody said, like Warren Buffett has one third of his calories from Coca-Cola for the last 50 years or something. So he's like a third Coca-Cola wow. or something. <laughs> um, it's like, so it's, it is like, it is and like true. other third McMuffins or something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I really believe the future of food needs to be good, accessible and whole. This is my take on this with coffee. I think Koba is one step in that direction where you get something quality, where you get coffee made into a chocolate, which is like making chocolate is not easy. It's super, super technical. And it gets down to the molecular with like the cocoa butter crystals are structured and how that has to align for the snap to happen. And, and any temperature mm -hmm. or water or any even ounce of that will, will disrupt that crystallization, which makes the coffee uh, bloom uh, or the coffee bar bloom. Mm -hmm which then looks like it's molding, but it's really just the sugar separating from the fat. I do want to hear about that, but also I want to touch on a few things. Uh, one, food insecurity. I've never heard it described these two different ways, and I'm not sure you were intending this like this pun, but there's the food insecurity of like food deserts and accessibility, yes. but also the insecurity of like individually, yes. maybe you're insecure about your own diet and weight and things like that. There's some kind of tie there, but it's interesting that you brought up both sides of that insecurity. Yeah, I would say like from my observations and what I've studied, uh, food deserts result in a lot of food insecurities. If your go-to is the liquor store or, or McDonald's and the dollar menu and things like that, what you're used to really changes how you perceive whole foods and vegetables. A lot of the McDonald's, while you do have the illusion of choosing like a sliced apple or milk, that's interesting that McDonald's put that on their menu. The illusion of health costs them maybe like 50 bucks a month for McDonald's. And then you can actually add apple slices on your menu and look like you have a choice. Mm. That does a lot more for their brand than than actually making a profit from the apples, right? You could look at the line item and how much apples they sell. It's not, it's pretty interesting. I don't think, huh. I don't think it's almost at all, but. Wow. But, um, Versus like the, everything they're spending on like the burgers. Yeah. Almost entirely, right? It's going to be fries, burgers, and the drinks, right? Huh. Uh, they make all their money off the drinks too, right? Even the word choice, right? Like growing up, I didn't have a choice mm -hmm. in what I ate. I mean, luckily, both my parents are amazing cooks and mm -hmm. we had, you know, standard Chinese food, like rice, vegetables, meats, but it was like objectively healthy. We had like all different kinds of vegetables and it, I never understood the Western thing of kids, like not wanting to eat vegetables. Like one, I didn't have a choice. It was just given to me. And my parents would tell stories about how they starved as children. So of course I'm not gonna like offend them by not eating, but two, they actually tasted good. Who knew that if you cook vegetables, right, they, they taste great. I don't know if you had oh, a similar totally. experience with food. Yeah, no, I totally vibe with that. Recently, we did this shabu shabu kind of thing and we put bok choy in there. And I was like, I swore I went for the bok choy a lot more than the meat. And it was just like- it was, <laughs> Bok choy is amazing. It's amazing. There's so much umami. And like when you, when you put it into that broth, oh my gosh, it was just this amazing oh. thing. And we ran out of vegetables so much faster than we did the meat. So, um, <laughs> wow. yeah, but you know, like I would have never thought that until I actually started processing like, hey, why do I always go after, you know, halal guys <laughs> instead of like, or at the middle <laughs> of the night when I'm so stressed, right? Why do I always go after like mm. the food that I wouldn't choose in the mornings or when I'm feeling like more myself, McDonald's as a corporation makes more money from their real estate than mm. they do their actual food. The food business is actually a failing business. It's their real estate business mm. that does really well. If you notice that where they're positioned, just basically on the highway lines, it's just indicative of like what kind of like power and habits that it creates to the communities around it. I really think Kimball Musk is doing an amazing job trying out these experiments in the, you know, 
Southwest, where he starts farming out of containers from the local areas and, and creates restaurants out of that. Mm. If you know, like Tesla's restaurant, they just trademark their restaurant, like a Tesla restaurant. And then if you also huh. know, they have like that like supercharger network. I think there's a partnership coming in like this, like space side with, with whole foods and vegetables coming to combat this food insecurity and food deserts. And I hope Koba can also contribute in some way. Instead of drinking coffee in space, they'll, they'll eat Kobas. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to a, a segment of the Joe Rogan podcast where Michael Pollan has this new book out called Your Mind on Plants. Mm. And he talks about this really interesting history about coffee and how the advent of caffeine in the Western world mm -hmm. aligned with enlightenment and science and math and all these things. Because before that, the beverage of choice was, you know, alcohol. It was like beer. And so people were sluggish all the time mm -hmm. and you could do farm work and, and things that didn't require much intellectual horsepower. Mm -hmm. But after caffeine, you know, once you have a population caffeinated, you can do so much more mm -hmm. with your brain. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Never thought about caffeine in that way. I, I more so thought of like, man, why are we as a society like so reliant on this drug? And it is a drug, mm -hmm. right? But maybe it is a good thing that it allowed us to do all these things. So like touching on that history of coffee, some popes called coffee the devil's drink because it got people to mm. think. And mm. the enlightenment was driven by a lot of people meeting at cafes and starting to drink coffee and enjoy that. And there's a lot in history where, you know, rulers would just outlaw coffee in general because of exactly what you addressed. The alcohol would not make them as thoughtful as actually as, as coffee would. My, my backstory behind coffee, as, as much as I would want to say, like, yeah, I started thinking better and all this stuff. It really was because uh, Starbucks looked so cool. And I was not a cool kid in high school. <laughs> it does look cool. I was not the cool kid in high school. And when mm -hmm. older folks would take me to Starbucks and everyone's getting like frappuccinos and stuff, I wanted to be a little bit different. And then I get the iced coffee. By the way, iced coffee at Starbucks is terrible. You should never get that. It's just, if you're going to get something, get the cold brew. But I do not understand the people that get iced coffee. It's basically the French roast or Italian roast is the roast that comes in ships that were at the bottom of the boat. They'll have so much salt water that you couldn't even like really oh. process it into, into a medium roast. So they would roast the crap out of it. So it becomes so dark. You can't even taste the difference. And really it's just for mm. me, like the flavor profile is like Sharpie and ashtray, you know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, um, when you do a cupping experience, you'll kind of like start doing that, but that's just my personal thing. But yeah, I wanted to be cool. I went to Starbucks a lot. And then eventually when I was dropping out, I wanted to get a job at Starbucks because that's like the next cool thing to do. Right. And I applied and I thought I was way overqualified because again, me and my ego back then, and I got rejected. And I was like, what? I was like, I got rejected <laughs> to Starbucks. And then I'm, oh, they actually have a 2% acceptance rate. It's Whoa, really low. It's lower than Harvard. Um, I mean, it's like lower <laughs> than all the schools really, right? Well, what do they look for? I have no idea. I didn't really go like after that, all I had was emotion and I wanted to just like take on Starbucks. Take on Starbucks, mm. right? Uh, so I thought I was going to open a cafe and beat Starbucks when I was like 18. And then I realized that's a really bad idea. Like it's not going to work. And like, you only make so much money if you have like 20 plus stores. So I was like, I don't have the money for that or anything. So then I built a roaster because I thought I was going to supply the coffee to cafes then. And mm -hmm. I didn't have the money for like the 20,000 standard dollar, like commercial roaster. And then you also need a license to put it in your backyard. And you know, that makes your uh -huh. residence area commercial. And that's also impossible to do. So I was like, okay, you know, F this, I'm going to get a pot, put it on the side. I understand the mechanics of where the beans are supposed to be flowing. So I can test that. So, and then we put a, so we put some trippers inside the pot, put a 
like a long wire through it. And then we've got a me mechanism to spin it over a propane fire tank that I took apart. So it was on a life open fire in a pot. All the Koreans that went to church in LA will know that there are these pots of stew, like soup that you get with rice every Sunday and it's horrible. But imagine one of those pots. <laughs> it's like this pot that just, it just fills it just with all the soup. You put it on the side and it's just spinning. And then it does about huh. like five pounds. And then it, it actually did well. Like my first client was the school district that I dropped out of. <laughs> um, and that was just a cold email. No way. Just a quick story there. I was literally in community college sitting on a couch waiting for class to start. And I said, I'm going to email all the principals I know. So I started emailing <laughs> all the Glendale Unified. And then I had the cojones to say, I'm going to also email the superintendent. And the only one that responded was the superintendent. No, it's like, way. oh, okay. He's like, yeah, come on, come through. I said, I want to bring you coffee. He's like, okay, I'll come, come by and bring me coffee. And then so you know what? I can't like see you selling cups of coffee here, but we have these events. Uh, we have events all throughout the year. Why don't you just be our coffee guy and we'll pay you like three times your cost. How about that? I'm like, so why, why? He's like, oh, because, um, I, I know what it's like to be in the restaurant business. My family's in the restaurant business. I was like, oh my gosh, okay. First client ever. And that was like a huge thing, right? Cause that was a lot of events and then we made, we made good money. Yeah. And you were, how old were you then? 19. Okay. Yeah, so like a year long contract. Did that lead to other contracts with like other school districts or companies? Well, at 19, so the, around that point was when I started to transfer. When I was transferring out of college mm. to UC Santa Barbara. So the coffee thing was because it was like a, an event driven thing. So it was very ad hoc. We were maybe doing a few events a month. Also, I was going to community college at the same time. And then I also started like a tutoring SAT type of like small scale business. It's like two or mm. three students at first, but, um, right before the year I transferred, we had 18 students, nine of them went to UC Berkeley. So I guess I did, I did something, something well there. Um, so about half, and right? then you followed them to Berkeley after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really wish like, I, my students made it in, but I yeah, can make it in. Yo, and they're doing great. They're all doing so well. Oh my gosh. They're like some are programmers, some are executive assistants out there, and, but they're all doing so good. Really the funds from that SAT experience and teaching kids is pretty profitable for, I mean, we made like $4,000, $5,000 over a summer. So it's like a, you know, a decent amount. Yeah. That really helped kickstart. Great summer job. Yeah, really. It validated my knack for making money and doing business. So Koba is the merging of this coffee side hustle, like roasting business. Like, I, I don't even know if it's a business, right? Cause we were just making like a few hundred dollars a month, right? Like maybe like five, $600 a month. I mean, that counts like small business. Yeah. 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 Small, small business. And then we had this like other wave of like making a chunk of change from teaching in an actual rented facility and having students hiring people. And then you, you merged mm -hmm. two and, and then you put e-commerce on top of that, where I, I used to go to garage sales and sell, like buy stuff and sell things on eBay. That was a, Damn, that was so you were too. always like side hustling. Yeah. You know what it was though? It was trying to me figure out who I am. Like after I dropped out, mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be like this seller student going forward, but I was none of this. So I, I thought making money was like the end all be all. And I just kept subscribing mm -hmm. to bad, really bad, uh, hustle mentality talks. I don't think that's for everybody, right? Nobody, nobody can hustle like that. And, and, uh, you prescribe your solution to everybody and some people fail. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got their own pace. And like, I think if you are running a startup, like a pattern I've seen with entrepreneurs, it's like, it is a lot of work, obviously, but it's up to you how fast you want to grow and how you want to manage that, you know, whether you want to 
raise funding and grow a team and build a rocket ship or whether you want to side hustle it and moonlight it as a business. There's so many different ways a business can look. And it's not just about like wake up at 5 a.m. every day and like hustle grind till, till you sleep kind of thing. Yeah, well, you also lived like that, didn't you? For a few, you were, I did, you were I did. Awesome. I was, yeah. yeah. And it didn't help that I was in the Harvard bubble where there's already like layers upon layers of ambition. I think this expectation that like, because you've made it into this prestigious community, that like you have to have something to show for it, right? Mm. And all the influences we were shown were like, oh, look at these startups that have raised millions in funding and are now mm -hmm. like, that was the dream for a while until I realized it. it wasn't realistic mm. for me. Mm. Okay. Wow. You know, it takes a lot to come to that, like mm. to pivot out of what was so high, right. That you were reaching for and probably very close to, I mean, if you, if you were working on the startup for years, like, you know, and to rewind out of it, I mean, I haven't done that yet. So I don't know what it's like, but this podcast is inspired from mental health, which is like the biggest appeal to me. Because it's mm. the things unseen, right? That does so much damage, right? Subtly yeah. and subconsciously, right? Mental health should be number one for anyone going in this route. But I'm, I'm mm. just curious, like you, you drove, you rewind it out of that. Was that like? Uh, it was really hard. And to be honest, a lot of it was not by choice. The kind of like unraveling happened when we lost our biggest client mm -hmm. and because of money issues, my co-founder left the company. Mm -hmm. I not only lost a business partner, but also a really close friend. Yeah. And because we both still believed in the business at that point, there was a big equity battle. And that just took a huge toll on me along with like the other legal issues. But at the same time, it has taken me a while to speak out about it because at the time I was still in this other startup incubator and I started working for another ed tech company and like helping out other yeah. startups. And on the surface, I was still like, happy go lucky. Things are going great. Yeah. You know, that meme of the dog in the burning house where it's like, everything's fine. <laughs> so I would, it, it would be crazy. Like I would be in this accelerator space and I would like go in and like look like it was fine but then sometimes i'd just have to like go into a meeting room and just like break down and cry for a little bit and then i like come out and be like it's fine mm. <laughs> the the new startup i was working with college ai mm. i mean the guys there were so sweet they were young like straight out of college and one i didn't think they were un would understand but i also didn't want to like rain on their parade because they were in the mode of like everything's going to be awesome. So it was a weird time yeah. <laughs> and a weird space to be in while I was going through this stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, losing a co-founder is, it's like a small divorce, right? Because like oh, you started, yeah. you created something together and, uh, and we've lost mm -hmm. a few. And if there's something that keeps me up at night, it's that because I feel like I should have done something more. That's... Do you have a co-founder now? Yeah. Yeah. We have one. Co and I told him like the only reason why he's still here and he's doing so well is because he speaks up and he will fight like for what direction and things like that. I have a big personality and I, I, I tell myself that once this Coba company takes on like a certain threshold of revenue, it's beyond me because I would be doing more damage at the helm than, than pushing it from the back. I just, I know that about myself. So I, I I'm very, like very forceful and pushing and mm -hmm. some people have to just be like, yo, like Peter, like, I think this is wrong. I think we got to do it this way. And my co-founder is one that has been that voice. That's really self-aware to be a founder CEO and plan ahead to not be in the driver's seat 
one day. I mean, um, I haven't done that yet, right? Okay, okay. Well, call me, <laughs> this this podcast will call me out when I'm like, oh, Peter, you're this is gonna be a you, you said. I just had a conversation with another food founder the other day who's going into this new phase of the company and she feels like it's beyond her skill set at this point. At a certain point, it's like you either have to skill up and learn all the management skills and whatnot or bring someone in. You have to really look at yourself objectively and say, like, I'm not the right person for this. But that's for future Peter to worry about. You know, you know, it's weird, though, because like speaking about career a little bit. Me being in public accounting and having audited and met CEOs, maybe like 20 different CEOs across from cannabis to tech to nonprofit, you realize like a couple things about like just a common thing about the good CEOs. They're like the coolest cucumber in the room. They are so mm. chill. Like just their natural demeanor is that. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's an interesting trait to pick up. And then, you know, like 99% of the time they're rejecting things because mm. you got a whole, you got thousands of people working for you. A lot of people have an idea. So what you want, what they're doing is just filtering out what the priority of the company is and, and saying yes and no to those. In some ways, I, I thought accounting was like a terrible thing for me. And, and it's not accounting. It's, I'm not an accountant. I'm an auditor. So it's a little bit different because I'm more inquisitive and I, I look at processes and things. But it's it's slowly developing like what management at a corporate level looks like, what at a national mm -hmm. level looks like. And I have the, the platform to ask those questions about, hey, like, what do you do in this case? What do you do in that case? You know, it's been interesting being at the bottom looking up in that sense. And, and then now in Coba being at the top looking down, we all know like Steve Jobs stories, right? After he left and started next, he came back so much wiser. Like Steve Wozniak, I mean, attest to the difference after he left and came back and he was trained well, mm. like smart and, and different. So is that the auditing experience for you is like your version of next? I have no idea. I, I don't know. Just another quote from Steve Chow. So when I was dropping out, I, I listened to his uh, commencement speech a lot because I didn't get to hear my own from my high school. He was mm -hmm. like, you can't connect the dots moving forward. You can only look at it looking back. The state that I want to be in at all times is just this awe and wonder of where I'm at in life and where I'm going. So at, at this point in your life, do you still, or how much do you still care about what your resume looks like? Or does that not matter? And you're just following what you're curious about? I care some days and I don't care other days. Like on the days I care, I'll look at my credentials. I'll say, okay, Peter, you went to UC Berkeley, check. Okay, that'll get you into like an entry level position somewhere. You have a real estate license. Okay, so if you wanna hustle it out on your own, okay, that's a little check. You are working towards a CPA. So if you want like a desk job where it makes steady income, this is something you'd wanna get. If you have like a family and you need to grind it out for 10, 15 years and you're not able to get like another job, like where I'm at now, then that's a check. So like, that's how I plan for my resume side. Most of the days, your resume doesn't really matter. Unless you're in, in limbo between your first job and your next, your next one, your resume really doesn't do, do much. Uh, most of the year is you, I guess, building the next check mark on your resume. I haven't had time to update my resume, honestly. I've been just kind of so go, go, go in the, in the forefront and mm. see what the next step is, what, what the next thing we need to do is. We, we just launched our third Kickstarter campaign. The first two were successful, fully funded. And now this is, this one is fully funded and way over like 70% or something. I would only cite my resume there where I said, Hey, we had two Kickstarter campaigns before, but I don't go around like looking at this and say, Oh, look at me. I did two, three Kickstarters now. <laughs> then, like, then that really tells you what the value of this is. Right. And it's not really valuable to me as an identity anymore. I always go forward. 
let's dig in a little bit into COBA because I want to hear more about your journey and what you've learned both from a product side, the science stuff. I definitely want to hear more about how to actually make a coffee bar and then also what you've learned actually running and managing a business. Making the COBA was like, like a three-year experience and once it's made, it's made. So we have a strong formula that we, it's going forward. Basically, the pitch we usually do is coffee for hundreds of years, you get all your coffee beans, don't get in water and throw everything out. 80% of the bean is wasted. Well, we got to change this. And then on top of that, like that bean took a lot of work to get here. Coffee trees mature after 10 years. And if you like the Arabica stuff that's on top of the mountains, people have to climb all year round. There's no harvest season for coffee. It's every day because coffee trees ripen unevenly. So in one tree, you'll see one side that's ripe and one that's not. So you have to keep filtering through all of those trees all year round. So it's a very, very, very tough job. But you know what? I guess people do it because it's profitable. There's a huge demand for it. And, and people suffer at the bottom. I've met farmers and it's a very difficult job. It was like life-changing, I guess in a trite way, trite word. To see these farmers that I've met in Ecuador feeling so grateful that they even had a job like this. And they had a great boss and they were able to sustain like their family. And, and again, breaking my Western like veil of like what I think I was told about, you know, poor farmers, but there's still a lot of gratitude that's, that's shared in South America and, and, and among people. But going back to this, the mechanisms, you get the green bean, you process it for a few months, you dry it and you depulp it from the cherry. That's the actual coffee. You ship it across the world. And then, you know, some, some guy roasts it in like some storage unit in Oakland and they sell it to us and we grind it and brew it. We throw 80% of it away. It's taken so long and so much work. Oh, we throw man. so much of it away and there's a huge waste problem. And how much of that dollar has really gone back, right? I pay like $12 per pound or something, per 12 ounces. How much of that $12 has gone back? I mean, we can all, we all know it's very small, but the reason why it's so small mm -hmm. is because the shipping costs. The logistical costs mm. and all the, the taxes and every, all the, the regulatory fees to get it through is, in my experience, 80% of the cost. The raw ingredients oh, wow. are also 20% of the farmer pay, basically, much less on a non-boutique level, right? So this was like a more of a small-scale boutique farm that I was working with. Why is so much of the coffee being thrown away? Most of the bean that's left is cellulose, which is just like wood, wood pieces. It's really what gives coffee the bitter kind of like stale taste. So that's why a lot of it is discarded. You know, we questioned that and said, Hey, well, why can't we grind it all up just like chocolate does and then see if it tastes good. And the first time we did that, it tasted terrible. <laughs> We're like, oh, this is why they don't do it. Is <laughs> that like tree bark or something? Yeah, it was just like a French, a French roast from Starbucks. It's just this nasty, like, just basically eating those Ash green and beans. Sharpie. Yeah, they're just eating that, right? And it's just not good. It took like two, three years uh, of figuring this out and making it work. We bought whatever we could with the little amount of money we had. We made a mess in our college dorms. And again, back then it wasn't commercial. We were just doing it for our friends and myself. And, and it took two, three years in Berkeley, especially. And if you work with cocoa butter, it gets everywhere. And once it gets stuck, it hardens. And then you have to scrape it all off. And it's everywhere. And it's just this like craziness. Then, Can you heat it up with a hairdryer? Yes. Yes. Wow. You know about mm -hmm. this. Except we had, um, we were a little more fancy. We had the uh, heat seal guns. So it, like that's a little bit more oh. concentrated. Yeah. That was a crazy day. Crazy days. And then we finally like launched our Kickstarter and we're like, oh, we got to get a commercial kitchen. We got to pump 10,000 of these out. 
And then like we were in the kitchen for like, I remember those days were like 18 hour days. There's no windows in this kitchen either, by the way. So it's just like 18 hours in the kitchen, like door dashing food and to fulfill our orders. We did that for like two years. <laughs> Only recently we had to scale in the budget to find a contract manufacturer where we send them our coffee labeled like X and then they'll apply it into their system. Uh, gosh, what a crazy, wow. crazy days. Wait, so was that while you were still at Berkeley or, or while you were working? while I was working a public accounting job. If you know anything about public accounting, it's a lot of like, a lot of work and little pay, just enough pay to pay for the operating costs for COBA. I put all my salary, I bootstrapped this, and then um, my co-founders put some money in. And then thankfully last year, 2020, we raised our pre-seed round. Thank God for that, because otherwise, um, I don't know if we would have had the mental space. So that's another thing, right? Having some mental space makes you take creative steps that you've been taken. Being so busy, I, I didn't never thought about, hey, contract manufacturing should be a priority. I just said, oh, I know about it, but I'm not sure if, the, if we can experiment right now. I don't have the space to experiment. Money does a, a lot for you for time, right? It gives you kind of like this leisure to say, hey, like, I'm gonna sit back, I'm gonna watch this and see what happens. That's the strategy I'm trying to do with juggling these two internal audit corporate job right now that I'm doing full-time and then COBA from like 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. every day. Still trying to figure out the balance mm. between the two. COBA is really yeah. like this three-year long iteration before it tasted really good uh, enough so that, you know, even the concept of it blew out our funding goal in our first Kickstarter. And now we're in 45 stores. We are being requested by a lot more now. We're really spearheading the trend of what a coffee bar should be. From a very authentic point of view, I think we're actually trying to engage with the farmers down to the customers and controlling the whole process in between. We have a team of six or seven and everyone has been grinding for two, three years, almost entirely unpaid for just this aspiration. And they're all Berkeley students that are smart and really hardworking and we've built a great infrastructure. Our content team has improved so much. We've just brought on somebody who won the Hollywood Film Festival in Milan for Best Music Video. And we're very, very fortunate and lucky to have him. And he's been upping our, our, our standards for content. With this whole new brew launch, it really does bridge the gap between people who don't really know what a coffee bar is and at least trying something that they would understand, which is like this coffee concentrate. We, where he took the inspiration from Phil's Coffee, how they have a mint mojito. So very similar, yeah, that's really um, good. except I wouldn't use sugar. I would just use like a, a blue agave syrup. Um, mm, you know, you okay. mix it with oat milk and, and a blue agave and, and one mm. table, like one tablespoon. And that would, that would, okay. that is just, just delicious. I already had one of those this morning. I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised at the coffee bars. I'm not a big coffee person. I don't regularly drink coffee, but I do love coffee ice cream. And I have to say the bars taste like coffee ice cream. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. They're very, very good. I'm, and they're strong. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel it? So how's the caffeine after after you tried it? I know that it was- like... Oh, I definitely felt it. I think for, uh, for about an hour, I was like, I got to go run a marathon. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that stuff works. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I, I, I ran a marathon with these, the LA Marathon. By the time I was at like mile 24, I was totally melted, but man, it really tastes, <laughs> it, it tastes really, really good at the last two miles. Damn. Did that get you through the marathon? I'm, I'm pretty sure it did. Cause I, I, I know I didn't have any willpower left. So I was fixing <laughs> something else. That's uh, awesome though. Was that your first marathon? It was my second. The first one is my okay. whole marathon. So you're a runner. I used to be, but you know, the COVID, yeah, everybody gained that COVID mm. like 15. I was like, I gained like COVID 30 or 40. And like, I, I'm going, I'm getting back into it. I, I, sw I swim a little bit more, but oh, nice. um, my, my dad's a big runner. He's like more on the ultra marathon side, 
He, doing this, got my entire family, including my fiance, to run a marathon. That's crazy. Damn. <laughs> what an influence, yeah. That's a great family activity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Quality time, I guess. You know, you struggle together. Yeah, and you get, you I guess so. Actually, I didn't get to ask you, but, you know, mental health, right? How did EdTech go into driving a mental health podcast? Well, again, it, it goes back to my own journey of how things ended up with the startup. Mm. So 2018, when I was going through all that stuff and business unraveling and all that, I felt like I couldn't talk about that stuff. Mm. And I was also in the same incubator as Techstars. <laughs> I was like literally sitting across from the Techstars managing director. And like, of course, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, like startups suck or whatever. <laughs> that kind of drove a lot of the just shrinking back and hiding and processing things myself. I eventually went to therapy on my own and and that was great for me. I, I didn't I hadn't really like understood what therapy was before or why it was helpful or necessary. During grad school, there was so much to do with school and thesis and the business that there was no time for mental health. Like mental health was like going and drinking on Friday nights and like going to house parties, you know? And so the stuff that happened in 2018 kind of forced me to slow down and look inward for the first time in a very long time. Mm. I was like, oh, wow, I need to build myself up because I'm not okay. Mm. And no matter how much press my startup's getting or whatever speaking engagements, it doesn't matter. Like if you look successful on the outside and if you're not okay on the inside, mm. that's not sustainable. Yeah. And we see like early extreme examples, right? Of like Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, took his own life. You know, on the outside, he was the most successful, had all his friends around him. Yep. But, yep. you know, you got to be solid on the inside if you want to stay alive to see your successes. Oof, staying alive. I always thought that, you know, I wanted to be this big, powerful guy with this like nice, like mansion and all that. But I started looking inward. I was like, what really makes what make me feel good is, you know, holding my wife's hand 60 years down the road, reflecting on how great our lives were and how many like children we've raised. And that image for me is like something that I can choose to go after, right? I can actually make the right choices to go to, to make sure that we can do that. And I, I'm sharing with you now, like I've never shared this before, but started to go, I'm having therapy sessions. I've never said it, so it's like weird to say, but it's, it's, yeah. it's like, oh my gosh, like having somebody else like take care of my thoughts and bring out whatever subconscious forward is really, really important. Not just me, but people around me too. And so stoic philosophy sometimes says like, you know, you always want to control what you can't control inside. Then rather than look outward and try to control what you can't control. If you can't control it, just let it go. I'm not like, like a stoic by any means. I've just read a few quotes by Marcus Aurelius and like Seneca, but at least it, it's starting to make sense. And I'm starting to like, at least drive my mornings forward. And I think it, it still like rings true throughout the rest of the day. But yeah, looking inward is so, so important. I think it's inside first, right? It's definitely insight first. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that about therapy. I, I feel like with guys, especially a, a lot of guys are yeah. like afraid to open up about these things or, or go to therapy even, or admit that. So yeah, I appreciate you no, I, being open and vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. The image of you and your wife and your kids, like that's amazing. And, and one thing I, I love talking about on this podcast is redefining what success is for yourself. 
I'm sure you have goals for COBA, but I think just as important and maybe more important is your personal life. Something beautiful I heard recently a friend say was, if you think about impact, if your goal is like social impact, starting a business, you might impact like all your customers. But if you have a kid, like imagine how many people that kid is going to touch in their lives. That's like thousands, maybe millions of people. Yeah. You can like mold and shape a person in this world. Yeah. That's so cool. And the, and the shame is when you don't raise good kids, but have a great business, right? Oh, man, mm. that would be just the worst. At the end of the day, who's going to represent your legacy the most, right? The person who was supposed right. to be closest to you. Oh. I love this platform because it's definitely insight first. Mm. And I think I, I saw President Obama and, and Michelle Obama opening up about how they had family therapy. And can you imagine what these two titans would fight about and how much they would claw at each other? I know how, what my fights are like, and I can't imagine what people at the national level were going through. And we all have that baggage. And I just want to go back and really highlight even these great people had gone through this and prioritized their insights first. And I think we, we all should do the same. Agreed, 100%. If the Obamas need to do it, we all need to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If folks are interested to learn more about you or COBA, where can they find you guys? Website's the easiest, uh, coba.coffee. Uh, just you can type that in the URL and into Instagram and they'll both link you to the same place. I really, really appreciate you opening up about your story. Yes. Thank you for coming on the show. Okay, thank you for having this platform. It's really, really been a humbling experience to be here. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday, and in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.